Richard Danzig, a former Navy secretary who serves as the vice chairman of the defense-oriented think tank RAND Corporation and is a board member and former chairman of the Center for a New American Security, another think tank, has authored a report titled Surviving a Diet of Poison Fruit, Reducing the National Security Risks of America's Cyber Dependency. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Richard Danzig about the report published by the Center for a New American Security. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do this. That's an interesting title, Diet of Poison Fruit. You write cyber systems nourish us, but at the same time, they weaken us and poison us. How so? Well, I think this is a, a fundamental proposition that probably some would disagree with, but and my judgment is that cyber systems give us huge benefits. Everyone sees that. But at the same time, insecurity is inherent in the technology. Uh, it derives from a number of variables, all of which uh, feed insecurity, and therefore that the key remedial step to recognize is that not only do we need to do things like good hygiene or firewalls or whatever, to protect ourselves and diminish the insecurity, but also we need to recognize that to actually get to a higher state for critical systems, we need to cut back on our use of cyber and mix into those systems analog components, uh, that is non-digital components, uh, or human variables in the loop. And we need to build in a resiliency which anticipates failure because ultimately insecurity is ineradicable. What I found most fascinating about your, your report was the idea for suing, well, at least in certain situations, doing less with cyber. Uh, and, and you're talking about very strategic systems, I gather, correct? Well, it, that's, it seems to me the clearest case, but I think it's a generally applicable principle, and the principle I suggest is, is one of self-abnegation. For example, if you take the case of Snowden, we've had people do the kind of things Snowden has done many times before, but we've never had anybody be able to abscond with something on the order of 1.7 million documents. Why is that? It's because of the power of cyber systems to concentrate data, and that's an enormous capability, something we greatly value, but at the same time, it gives rise to a concomitant, uh, an equivalent uh, insecurity, which is the ability to, to, we've concentrated so much that we can have a wholly different kind of scale of insecurity. Then you might ask yourself, well, I understand what an NSA says about Snowden's role as an administrator privileging him to get access to this many documents, but why is it that he can copy them? And the answer, I think, probably comes down to some of the attributes of the machine, which probably were not essential to Snowden's activities. The ability to actually not only access these documents, but also to copy them and take them off the premises. If you had a uh, physical hardware that didn't permit copying or that wasn't subject to tinkering so as to permit copying, you'd actually be more secure. Or as a different, more mundane example, if you took a printer, frequently in high security situations, you need printing capability. But most printers also have faxing capability, network connection, memory, copying capability. If you stripped out all those other attributes, you'd have a more secure system. Yes, you would. But obviously, you may not have as an efficient system, which I guess is some of the arguments why people use these systems. And going back to this Snowden example, if the proper controls were in place, wouldn't he have been prevented from doing that anyway? getting access to some of this information or abilities to print the information even without having to change the technologies? 
Well, you make the right point that is, first, there's a trade-off with efficiency and also with effectiveness. There really is a trade-off. There needs to be a lot more consideration than there presently is about how when we buy nice-to-have things, we're increasing our insecurity, or put another way, more technically, we're increasing the number of attack surfaces more self-conscious choices that say we recognize that getting the full power of cyber is a great thing and increases our efficiency and our effectiveness, but the trade-off is that by doing that, we're actually decreasing our security, so we have to be very self-aware, and my report is trying to make us, among other things, more aware of that. Then you you point out that there's uh, controls we can implement But first of all, the controls themselves typically have elements of insecurity in them. But then second, to the degree we introduce certain controls, like two-man rule that NSA has introduced post-Snowden, we are diminishing the capability for using the cyber system. We are buying inefficiencies. Now we need two people to do what one needed to do before and query what happens in emergencies, et cetera, et cetera, or when the two disagree. Everything we do to increase our security, not everything, but many things, will reduce our efficiency, and this is a trade-off. Making the decision of what technologies maybe not to use, whose decision should that be? I mean, in, in the report, you seem to express a certain reluctance to regulation, but at the same time, you mentioned that certain organizations fall within a, a certain national security interest, so maybe their regulation should be appropriate. First off, you you rightly noted a kind of core case, which is our national uh, nuclear arsenal and uh, ability to maintain a nuclear deterrent. There we have a case where clearly the decision should be made within the federal government at a higher level, and that's where I would start with judgments about how we introduce analog and other components into that system to protect ourselves from digital insecurity. Then I think after we have gained more experience with that, you would very appropriately ask, what are the private sector industries that are so fundamental to our national well-being that if someone could subvert their digital systems, it would give us an unwillingness to operate to achieve our national security goals. We otherwise were going to intervene to protect an ally or ourselves, and someone said, well, if you do that, I can bring down your power grid or whatever. Would that deter us? If it would, uh, if we've reached the point where people could plausibly do that, then I think there's a case for investing to try and get those industries in a more secure position and applying the same principles to them that we apply to the federal government. Ultimately, that may require regulation. But if they're so fundamental to us, uh, I, I believe regulation would be in order. We haven't reached that point yet. We haven't done that analysis. We haven't tried non regulatory means of achieving that end. The report raises mutual assured destruction. That's the idea, I guess, that kept the U.S. and Russia at bay during the Cold War where we weren't throwing nukes at one another as perhaps a way to reduce cyber tensions with China and Russia. How so? In the report, I'm trying to introduce a series of new ideas or areas that have been less focused on. What I observe is that uh, the current Chinese-U.S. discussions about cyber are focused understandably on very hostile circumstances where both sides feel that the other is doing things they, they disagree with. But it would be very profitable, I think, to introduce into those discussions 
areas where actually we have the same interests and may be able to reach agreement. It's not to ignore the contention, but alongside the contention, let's add this. And one of those areas is with respect to our second strike capabilities. Our theory of deterrence now, as you say, is mutually assured destruction or MAD. It says it's good for us, America, that the Chinese have a second strike capability and that it's secure because it keeps them from being on a hair trigger with regard to a first strike. They know that they don't have to attack first in order to assure that they have a deterrent. They can wait, and that's in our security interest. And conversely, for the Chinese, it's in their security interest that we have the second strike capability. Well, if you buy my proposition that the cyber systems are inherently insecure, it's in neither our nor the Chinese interest for us to poke at each other's, intrude on each other's on second strike kind of capability. Because if we make them feel insecure about that capability, we are making ourselves more insecure and vice versa. I think there's a potential area of agreement here where we could establish some red lines and begin to make some confidence building measures that would decrease the insecurity that is generated by the present circumstance. And where would some of those red lines be and some of those confidence measures be? It's murky, and it's going to take a fair amount of discussion, and it may not work. But I think what we would look for would be an agreement in principle that we would not use cyber means to intrude on each other's nuclear arsenals or on our warning systems, because we don't want the Chinese to feel that we could uh, spoof their systems and mislead them if we were launching a nuclear attack so they wouldn't know it. We want them to trust their systems, and we want to trust our own. I think that agreement should be plausible in terms of confidence-building measures, We could agree that we would, for example, exchange information if we had an intrusion with the aim of trying to identify where that intrusion came from, as it may be very possibly from a third party, et cetera. We might be able to uh, agree on some measures of, uh, of restraint that we would not be engaged in using certain tools in certain kinds of ways. I think that would be very hard, and this idea may be unachievable or subject, certainly subject to appropriate criticism, but I think it is something we could strive for, and when we began in the nuclear age to move down the path of mutual restraint, it was unclear how we were going to get to uh, the kinds of agreements we got to, but through several years of technical exchange, we found the basis for some measures of agreed thing, understanding that we wouldn't undertake certain things. Another thing, uh, again, I, you're going to the, 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 the kinetic world, uh, for example, is you call for the use of voluntary reporting of near-miss incidents in aviation to establish a data collection consortium that would illuminate the character and magnitude of cyber attacks against the U.S. private sector. How would that work? Well, the how would it work question has been something that a lot of people have wrestled with. There have been a lot of proposals for trying to pool private sector data in ways that could give us a better picture of what's happening in terms of cyber attacks. But they've frequently foundered on the unwillingness of the private sector to have the government control this data, particularly in the wake of the Snowden revelations and the decisions not to uh, have the government collect data on telephone calls and the like. So why should it collect? data on this. And I'm only pointing out that, in fact, there is a better mechanism for uh, achieving this um, that's out there, or an existing mechanism that works, and that's in the context of aviation and near-miss collection of data, because uh, the aviation industry set up a private consortium in which the government is represented, 
but the control actually lies in the private sector. And over the years, they've developed a mechanism for reporting near-miss incidents that I think could be a model for using uh, for doing the similar kinds of things for uh, reporting cyber attacks. So I think that's that's a useful precedent and may be able to get us where we've been trying to get but have not yet succeeded. Does this suggest that bottom line with cybersecurity a lot relies on the private sector themselves? Yes, uh, always certainly a right proposition. We haven't yet quite figured out what the role is of the government and the role is of the private sector. In the paper, I point out that if you think about gunpowder and its introduction in Europe in the 1300s, over the course of the the next couple of centuries, it really revolutionized a whole large collection of security issues, whether they were the character of armies, which now became mass instruments and needed to be trained, or the character of states, which now needed to encourage the development of munitions industries and therefore became larger with their standing armies and munitions industries. And all these dislocations took a long time to occur and a long time then for the nation states and societies to adapt to them. But in the cyber circumstance, really it's two decades that there's been this dramatic change in the in the cyber world and our legislative and societal systems aren't moving as quickly to adapt to them they have to adapt 10 times as fast as to gunpowder but information systems are no less dramatic a change than gunpowder so it's not surprising that there's this uh, lag in our adaptive mechanisms uh, by articulating some principles in my paper I'm trying to help speed our adaptation. Do you see anything similar as you looked in the past that could be an analogy to today's situation in which business has a chief role in defending itself and maybe not the government? There are a number of examples, I think. Um, The evolution of our public health system is one in which there's an interaction between uh, my private uh, roles as a citizen, what I do to maintain my health, even in terms of seeing the doctor or getting myself vaccinated in circumstances where that's voluntary or avoiding sources of infection or practicing good hygiene. At the same time, the government backstops me in ways associated with the public health system. So while I may need to observe better protocols and washing my hands, the government provides me with some assurance of clean water. So we need an analogous kind of understanding about roles in the cyber world. Uh, and as I say, that's evolving and we, we haven't reached it yet. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Good luck to you. I've been speaking with Richard Danzig about the report, Diet of Poison Fruit, Reducing the National Security Risk of America's Cyber Dependency. I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.